0: I'm so glad today to welcome you to our center at 100 West Duarte Road, Arcadia, California. And today we're here to worship God and to study his word. It's my great privilege today to welcome to you someone who is very, very special to me and to you too. And that person is my wife, Beverly. Would you welcome her today?
1: I was expecting my daughter's call that morning April 19, 1995. As I sat by the phone my coffee cup rattled on the tabletop. The next instant I heard a thunderous sound and so begins the story by Bud Welch in that wonderful magazine Guideposts. The title of the story is Where Healing Begins. Bud Welch continues. The floor shook beneath my feet I ran to the kitchen window, blue sky, spring sunshine, just a peaceful Oklahoma day. It was hard to imagine anything terrible happening on a bright Wednesday like that. Every Wednesday was special for me because I always had lunch with my daughter Julie on that day. Julie was 23 years old and worked at the social security office office in the Muir building downtown. She was only 5 feet tall and 103 pounds, but she had a heart of gold. I believed in loving your neighbor and all the rest I heard in church on Sundays, but Julie, she lived her faith every day. She spent her free time helping the needy, taught Sunday school, volunteered for Habitat for Humanity. I kidded her, she was trying to save the world single-handed. The rumbling subsided. Bewildered, I stood staring out the kitchen window. Then the phone rang. I grabbed it, Julie, but it wasn't Julie. It was my brother, Frank. Is your TV on, bud? Radio says there's been an explosion downtown. Downtown, eight miles away? What kind of explosion could rock my table way out here? On the local news channel, I saw an aerial view of downtown from the traffic helicopter. Through clouds of smoke and dust, the camera zoomed in on a nine-story building with its entire front half missing. An announcer's voice, the Alfred P. Muir building. I didn't move. I scarcely breathed, my world stopped at that moment. It wasn't until Friday morning, two days after the explosion, that I was finally told Julie was dead. From the moment I learned it was a bomb, a premeditated act of murder that had killed Julie and 167 others from babies in their cribs to old folks applying for their pensions, I survived on hate. When Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols were arrested, I seethed at the idea of a trial. Why should those monsters live another day? One night, two months after the bombing, I was watching a TV update on the investigation, fuming at the delays when the screen showed a grey-haired man stooped over a flower bed. Cameraman in Buffalo today, a reporter said, caught a rare shot of Timothy McVeigh's father in his... I sprang at the set. I didn't want to see this man, didn't want to know anything about him. But before I could switch it off, the man looked up straight into the camera. It was only a glimpse of his face. But in that instant, I saw a depth of pain like, like mine. Oh dear God, I thought, this man has lost a child too. That was all, a momentary flash of recognition, and yet that face, that pain kept coming back to me as the months dragged on, my own pain unchanged, unending. Julie, you wouldn't know me now. Angry, bitter and full of hate. The bombing of the anniversary of the Branch Davidian deaths in Waco, Texas was supposed to avenge what McVeigh's obsessed mind believed was a government wrong. I knew something about obsession now knew what brooding on a wrong can do to your heart. But deep down inside, I knew I had to change. I had to stop the cycle. It took three long, hard years. Most people didn't understand when I quit publicly agitating for McVeigh's execution. I didn't understand myself when a few months later, I stood ringing the doorbell of a small, yellow frame house in upstate New York. The door opened and the man whose face had haunted me for three years looked out. Mr. McVeigh, I asked, I'm Bud Welch. Let me get my shoes on, he said. He disappeared and I realized I was shaking. What was I doing here? What could we talk about? The man emerged with his shoes on and we stood there awkwardly. I hear you have a garden, I said finally. I grew up on a farm. We walked to the back of the house where neat rows of tomatoes and corn showed a caring hand. For half an hour we talked weeds and mulch. We were bud and bill now. Then he took me inside. Family photos covered a wall. He pointed out pictures of his older daughter, her husband and his baby granddaughter. He saw me staring at a photo of a good-looking boy in suit jacket and tie. Tim's high school graduation, he said simply. Gosh, I exclaimed, what a handsome kid. The words were out before I could stop them. Any more than Bill could stop the tears that filled his eyes. His younger daughter, Jennifer, 24 years old, came in. Julie never got to 24. But I knew right away the two would have hit it off. Jennifer had just started her first job at a school. Some of the parents, she said, had threatened to take their kids out when they saw her last name. Bill talked about his job on the night shift at a General Motors plant. Just my age. He'd been there 36 years. We were two blue-collar Joes trying to do right by our kids. I stayed nearly two hours, and when I got up to leave, Jennifer hugged me like Julie always had. We held each other tight, both of us crying. I don't know about Jennifer, but I was thinking that I'd gone to church all my life and had never felt as close to God as I did at that moment. We're in this together, I told Jennifer and her dad, for the rest of our lives. We can't change the past, but we have a choice about the future. Bill and I keep in touch by telephone, two guys doing our best. What a wonderful example of forgiveness and compassion. Julie Welch would be very proud of her dad.
0: Are the Ten Commandments abolished? We have successfully kicked them out of the schools. Now lots of churches are kicking them out of their pulpits. Are the Ten Commandments done away with? I had a debate some years ago when I was living in Australia with a minister, and the debate was over this very issue. Are the Ten Commandments still binding upon Christians?" He spoke about the evil ten. He said it's a tremendous thing that the Ten Commandments were nailed to the cross and the commandments of God are no longer binding upon us. But then most people here in North America believe that the Ten Commandments are tremendously important. Most churches will tell you that we ought to keep the Ten Commandments. Lots and lots of Christians, particularly evangelicals over there on the right wing in the political world, tell us that we ought to put the Ten Commandments back into the schools, that we took them out of the schools, now we need to put them back in the schools. But if this is true, if the Ten Commandments are still binding, why don't people today in North America, which is the most religious Place in the world, why don't they keep the fourth commandment? If we put the Ten Commandments back in the pulpits and back in the schools, why don't we then say we're going to be consistent and keep the fourth commandment, as Joe Lieberman does, the Sabbath commandment? So that's one thing I'm going to talk about today. Are the Ten Commandments are abolished? I'm going to answer this question too. I have a number of questions I'm going to endeavor to answer. Could it be possible that your Jesus really is Willie Nelson? I'll explain that to you so don't turn off the program. Could it be that your Jesus is Willie Nelson? Also, is Satan a real person or is he simply a mythological figure? Is he a real person or is he as one little boy was explaining to a friend about Santa Claus. They were discussing, was there a Santa Claus? One little boy, who was the senior of the two, said, no, he said, there's no Santa Claus. When you're young, you think it's a real person. You think there's a real Santa Claus, but when you grow up, you discover it's really just your father. And then they had also been discussing the devil. He said it's the same with the devil. When you're a little boy you think he's a real person but when you grow up you discover no, not your father but somebody else. Just, just something, folk story. So we're going to answer that question. Is the devil a real person or is he like Father Christmas? Also, Is the rapture for real? Is it for real? Now there are songs today that are sung by gospel quartets and gospel singers that that talk about airplanes flying through the sky and all of a sudden the rapture takes place and the pilot is gone. Fortunately, there's a co-pilot who's not so good as the pilot because he's still there and he can steer the plane. But then when they're going to serve meals, as the rapture takes place, they only have to serve about, a, well, less than half of the meals because all the folks just went through the roof of the plane. Uh, then a, they did the story that there's a man, and a woman, married, I believe, in bed, and all of a sudden the rapture takes place and invariably the lady is gone and the man is lying there wondering whatever happened. Is the rapture taught in the Bible? And if it isn't taught in the Bible, why do all the television evangelists, almost all the television evangelists, preach it with such a gusto and enthusiasm? The topic today is a great topic. Great truths that Jesus taught for the last days. And today's meeting is a continuation of last Sabbath's meeting, which was entitled the Temple of of doom. and Today I'm going to continue that as I talk about great truths that Jesus taught for the last days. The chapter today we're going to deal with is Matthew chapter 24 that is called by many theologians the little apocalypse because it talks about the last days. The time is most likely 31 A.D. The place is Jerusalem And the voice that sounds down the ages is the voice of a carpenter, a rabbi, whose name is Jesus. Would you please take your Bibles, those of you who are watching on television. I want to say hello to my friends on television. I want to say hello to my great supporters on 3ABN. I'm so glad to welcome you today to our new center here in Arcadia. Come visit me soon, 100 West Duarte Road, Arcadia, California. Come and be part of our audience. We're going to turn now. We want you all to get your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 24 and verses 1 to 3. And if you don't have a Bible, Bibles are in the pews. And when people come to this church, we encourage them to bring a Bible. And if they don't have a Bible that they can bring, we supply them with a Bible because it's important for them to see the texts. This is a church that believes in the Word of God. Matthew 24, verses 1 to 3. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. We talked about this last Sabbath. Do you see all these things, he asked. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And we noticed last week that this occurred in the year 70 AD when Titus raised the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple to the ground. Verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, that's that little hill just to the east of Jerusalem, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming? End of the end of the age. We noticed last week that Matthew 24 is a double whammy prophecy, it is a dual prophecy. It talks about the coming of the Romans to Jerusalem in 66 A.D. when they surrounded the holy place. It talks about the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 A.D. but everything that happens in 70 A.D., 66 A.D., in that era of time is repeated on a worldwide scale before Jesus comes again. And so this chapter is called by theologians, the little apocalypse because it talks about the last days. So I want you to notice this to refresh your minds. The destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. was a symbol of the end of civilization. So everything—listen carefully to this—everything that is written here in Matthew 24 applies not just to the Jews two thousand years ago, but it applies to us today. And so the great truths that Jesus brings into focus, and I'm going to notice four great truths that our Lord brings into focus are pertinent to us not living just in the days of the Old Testament but living in the very shadow of the last events in the history of the human race. So today, I want you to notice great truths that Jesus taught for the last days. Would you notice Matthew 24 and verse 14, which is the first great truth, dear friend, I want you to notice. In the context of the end, Jesus said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. There is no truth more pertinent, my dear friend, no truth so important as the truth of the gospel. Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom. Now that gives you a clue. There is the gospel of his kingdom and there is the gospel of many other kingdoms. There is only one genuine gospel. Today when we talk about the gospel we talk about many, many, many different things. We talk about gospel music and gospel literature. But Jesus here, dear friend, listen to this, talks about the gospel of the kingdom. This tells us that there is a special gospel there is only one true gospel. There are many counterfeits, counterfeit gospels, but there is only one true genuine gospel. And this gospel is the only way whereby we can find, and I want to write up this doctrine, the doctrine of salvation through the reception of the gospel of the kingdom. Now, I want to ask you the question, and I ask the television audience, 3ABN and Family Nerd and uh, all these other channels we have the privilege of being on, Safe TV, I want to ask you this question. Could it be that your Jesus is really just Willie Nelson? Let me tell you something amusing that happened a few years ago. The year was 1987. We go down to Latin America. We go to one of those cities in that great part of the world and they'd had some rain. All of a sudden, the face of Jesus appeared on this wall. There he was with a beard. Apparently, our Lord And people came from all around and they came to what was quickly becoming a shrine. The newspapers talked about it. There is a new shrine and the faithful came by the thousands. I'm told some people even claimed that they were miraculously healed by the face of their Lord. A little bit like the Shroud of Turin. Absolutely wonderful. There was the face of our Lord. But there was a little problem. After the rain had dried up, a few weeks later, after the people had been worshiping our Lord and being healed, there came some more rain. And as it rained a little more, they discovered it wasn't Jesus. It was Willie Nelson. You see, it was an old poster of Willie Nelson, and they had whitewashed it. And as it had rained, as the whitewash had gone off, they discovered that it wasn't the religion of Jesus, it was Willie. <laughs> and one of the big Spanish newspapers put this out in public for everybody to see. Headlines that said, It's not Jesus, it's just Old Willie. I ask you today, my friend, is there not a lot of religion like this? There's a lot of so-called salvation preaching, my friend, that is like this. A lot of false gospel that is just like this. It looks great. It looks like Jesus. But when the rain comes, the rain of adversity, it washes off the whitewash. And underneath, it's not Jesus at all. It's just dear old Willie Nelson, the gospel I'm talking about today is the gospel of the kingdom. It's not the gospel of Willie or Billy or somebody else. It is the gospel of the kingdom. It is true, genuine, as they say about a certain beverage that is sold around the world. It's the real thing. If you go into my office here at 100 West Duarte Road, Arcadia, I'm just letting you know this so you know how to find us. 100 West Duarte Road, Arcadia, California, in this beautiful part of the world where I want to tell the people we came to church here today and we discovered we've got a tremendous mountain beside us. It was wonderful to see it. Some of us saw it for the first time. You see, we've had some wind. But let me get back. If you go into my office, you'll find that I've got a poster. Now the president of the church came to visit me on Tuesday because he'd heard that some people had bought this building and he thought it must have been us. And he came with a courtesy call. He looked around the place and said, it's really wonderful how God has blessed you. And he came into my room and there is a big poster from down under and it says, fair dinkum. Fair dinkum. And then underneath it, it's got a kangaroo and it's got a koala bear and it's got a few other things and it says, fair dinkum. I said to him, Larry, do you know what that means? He gave me a blank look. He said, no. I said, let me tell you the story. I was in Australia some months ago and there's a big Woolworth store in this, oh, heaps of Woolworth stores. I used to be over here, I think. So here is this big Woolworth store and uh, I'm going past and I look in the window, these tremendous posters, beautiful colored posters with koala bears and cockaburras that laugh in a very, very special way and kangaroos. And I had fair dinkum, Aussie owned, Aussie made. And I thought I would pay a king's ransom to get one of those to nail up in my church. I didn't dare do so, I nailed it up in my office. And so I went in and I said, can I see the manager? And the manager made himself available. I said, I would love to buy two of these fair dinkum posters. He said, why would you want those? I told him my situation. I said, I'm an Australian living in this land, isolated, full of fear. (laughs) And I said, I need something to console my fainting heart. I'm surrounded by Americans. I stand alone. Well, he said, in that case, you don't have to buy it. You can have it. He said, you can have two. So he gave me permission to go into the window and get a pair of scissors, and I got it over here, and I gave one to my son, who's more nationalistic than he ought to be, and I took one and had it framed, too. And so Larry Kavanagh came in, and he said, fair dinkum, what does it mean? I said, it means genuine. It means True blue. It means, I said, now you'll understand it, it means dinky die. (laughs) You get it? He said, I'm getting the drift. I said, it means it's the real thing, fair dinkum. So if you're a fair dinkum, you are genuine, you say. Now there is a fair dinkum, dinky die gospel. And that, my friend, is not just the gospel of Billy or Willie or anybody else. It's the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is this true gospel? Now, I had a book here, I still think it's here. I want to read you—now, the gospel, you know, means—what does it mean? Good news. It means good news. I want to read you out of one of my favorite books. Uh, This is The God Who Is There and Escaped From Reason— by Francis Schaeffer, one of the greatest um, philosophers that the world has seen, a Christian man. He quotes a famous French scientist and philosopher whose name is Monot. He says, Chance alone is the source of every innovation, of all creation in the biosphere. Pure chance, absolutely free but blind at the very root of the stupendous edifice of evolution. This central concept of modern biology is no longer one among other possible or even conceivable hypotheses. It is today the sole conceivable hypothesis, pure chance, absolutely free or blind, pure chance. Everything happens by pure chance were conceived and born by pure chance. Nothing is planned. There is no guiding hand in the universe. He says, the universe was not pregnant with life nor the biosphere with man. Our number came up in a Monte Carlo game. Is it any wonder if like the person who has just made a million in the casino, we feel strange and a little unreal? Look at me. The greatest sickness of our times is meaninglessness. That your number came up in the lottery. That's not good news. That is the root cause of our despair. Now the gospel teaches that we were made by God. The Bible teaches that I came from the hand of God. The Bible teaches that man is distinct and glorious even though he has fallen, he is still a son of God. Still a son of God. And the gospel teaches that the main cause for our problems is caused by the blight of sin. Yes, sin. And the Bible teaches The gospel teaches the gospel, the true dinky die, fair dinkum, genuine gospel teaches that God so loved us that he gave his son who died on the cross and paid the price for our sins so that you and I can be forgiven. The Bible teaches that when a person comes to God, In true faith and in repentance his sins are forgiven as Beverly spoke today so well about forgiveness. The Bible says the gospel is the good news that through Christ you and I can be forgiven. The gospel of Jesus is the solution to every human problem even including death. And so Jesus says, when he's talking about the end times, he says, you must understand the gospel, not the gospel of Willie, not the gospel of Billy, not the gospel of this person or that person, but the gospel of the kingdom, the genuine gospel that alone can save your soul. That's the first great truth, the gospel. The second great truth is taught in Matthew 24 and verse 15. Would you please notice it? Matthew 24 and verse 15, and we shall read it. So, so, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. The second great truth is the truth about the Antichrist. The Bible teaches that there is a truth about salvation and there's only one truth. There's only one salvation. And then the Bible says, when the gospel is preached with all its power, then the Antichrist is going to come against the people of God. And Jesus here quotes Daniel. And Daniel uses these interesting words, the abomination of desolation. Because, my friend, sin brings desolation to the human heart, but the gospel brings love and light and liberty. And when Jesus is talking about the Antichrist, Jesus, my friend, is referring us to a being by the name of Satan who works through the earthly Antichrist, but he is the original Antichrist. And in this context... Jesus, listen carefully because we talked about it last week, Jesus is talking about the hordes of Rome that came up against Jerusalem in 66 AD and that destroyed the temple of God in 70 AD. So the abomination of desolation is a prophetic description of this abominable power that comes against the kingdom of God and God in the last days. How will it happen? We spoke about this last Tuesday night in our Bible study. alluded to it last Sabbath morning. Bible prophecy indicates, now you must listen to this very carefully, that in the last days, perhaps in our era, there will come a coalition of pseudo-Christian, pagan, and civil power And these powers will join together in a worldwide dictatorship to persecute those who believe in the true gospel and who teach the commandments of God. That is how it is going to happen. It is described in the prophecies of Daniel and the Revelation. But at the back of this stands a person Most Americans believe in God, probably 95%. Most Americans do not believe in Satan, but Jesus did. Jesus said, I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven. In another part of the Bible, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was driven by the Spirit of God into the wilderness for 40 days. And there he had a contest with the master of evil, Satan. The Bible called him on that occasion the devil. And then when Jesus spoke to him personally, Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. Who is Satan? Satan is a mighty angel. The Bible says, using the vast power of his superintelligence, he deceived one-third of the holy angels of God who belonged to the kingdom of God, and they joined forces with him in rebellion against the kingdom of God. And the Bible says that Satan and his hordes have been cast down to this earth. Listen carefully. Jesus said, Not only is it necessary, imperative for you to understand the truth of the gospel, you must identify the enemy, Satan. This person who goes around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I want you to notice some texts that talk about the last controversy. Would you come with me over here to the prophet Daniel? Daniel chapter 11, my friend. Please notice Daniel chapter 11 that talks about the final conflict between Christ and Satan. Daniel 11 verse 44 and 45. Notice it in the Bible. Daniel 11, 44, 45. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him. That's the preaching of the gospel. As I pointed out last Tuesday night. And he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. Listen, my friend. The word annihilate here is the Hebrew word that means to place under a ban. And the Bible says, as we had in our Bible study on Tuesday night, great forces are going to come together in the last days to persecute the people of God and place them under a ban. And you can read this in the prophecy of Revelation chapter 13. Now read on. Verse 45, he the Antichrist will pitch his raw tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. In this context, the beautiful holy mountain is not Jerusalem. It is no longer Palestine. The beautiful holy mountain refers to the people of God or the church of God. And the Bible says that in the last days, the abomination of desolation, the great Antichrist, will come against the church of God. But notice what happens. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Chapter 12 and verse 1. At that time Michael the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Prophecy says that Satan, an angel of light in the last days will appear on the earth. The Bible says he will gather around his dazzling personality the kingdoms of this world and these pseudo-Christian pagan civil pals will come against the church of the living God And the Bible says when he does this he will come to his end because Michael is going to stand up and at that time the people of God whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life are going to be delivered. So what you and I must understand from this is while we must identify the enemy And while we must not discount his power, we must realize that in Christ we are victors. I love listening to music. One of my favorite singing groups is the cathedrals. They've just sort of retired. They've lost a member in death. George's got a little old. and So the cathedrals, I'm told, no more, but we still have their records. They sing a great song, wonderful song. I've read the back of the book, and we win. When they sing this song, one of their members, George or somebody, says, you know, when you get a novel, if you're very impatient, you turn to the back to see what's going to happen. You can't do that with a movie unless you rent it, you know. You've got a video, and you go back and forth. But if you're wondering what's going to happen in the book, you turn to the end, and the last chapter tells you the outcome, what's going to happen. My friend, if you turn to the last chapter in the Bible, it tells us that Satan is going to be destroyed, and God's people are going to win. And so we do not have doom and gloom theology except for Satan and the Antichrist. Because the people of God, my friend, are on the winning side. So every person here today should be glad to know that Satan is a defeated foe. Now, the next doctrine, number three. Come to Matthew 24, and verse 20, 21. We've dealt with two doctrines. Now we come to the third, Matthew 24. And remember, these words are given in the context of the last days. I want you to notice this. These words are given in the context of the last days. Matthew 24 and verse 20. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter. Can I ask you a question? Has winter been abolished since Jesus died? (laughs) Was winter nailed to the cross? I wonder. No, I don't think so. Don't think so. I've been to Russia, I know it isn't so. Verse 20, Pray that your fight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there'll be great distress. Jesus here talks about the Sabbath. I want to write this up on the blackboard because Jesus said this is a tremendously important truth for the last days. He talks about the gospel of the kingdom. He talks about the abomination of desolation. He says you should understand the work of Satan. You should understand the prophecies. And then he says, pray that you will have strength to observe the Sabbath in the last days. And people tell me the Sabbath is abolished. I find it hard to understand in the context of Matthew 24. I was listening to CNN the other day and they spoke about the man who hopes to be the vice president of the United States, that fine Jewish gentleman, uh, Joe Lieberman. And they said he does not campaign with Al Gore because he keeps the Jewish Sabbath. But I want everybody to know that Joe Lieberman does not keep the Jewish Sabbath. He keeps the Sabbath of the Bible. Because the Sabbath of the Bible goes back a long way before the Jewish people. But the Sabbath does not belong to Joel Lieberman or the Jewish people. It belongs to God. The Sabbath came in thousands of years before the Jews. This is the teaching of the Bible. It's not my idea. I've noticed in my work that people have all sorts of reasons, should I say, excuses, why they don't keep the Sabbath. You may not keep the Sabbath for one of these reasons. Stay with me. Let me talk to you about it. People say, I can't keep the Sabbath any longer because time's been lost. The seventh day's been lost. I had a lady come to one of my meetings. She said, these are wonderful meetings. And then one night I spoke about the Sabbath. She said, I can't keep the Sabbath because you can't tell which is the seventh day. I said, why? She said, well, so long since the first Sabbath, so long since Jesus, we can't tell which is the Sabbath day. Because the Bible says the seventh day is the Sabbath day. It says that. That's the fourth commandment. So you folks who believe in the Ten Commandments, who want the Ten Commandments to be put back in the classrooms, I say, why don't you keep the fourth one? Why don't you keep the fourth one? It says, keep the Sabbath, and it's the seventh day. This lady said to me, you can't tell which is the seventh day. I said, why? Oh, she said, time's been lost. I said, why do you keep Sunday? She said, because the Lord rose on the first day. Oh, he rose on the first day. That's why he keeps Sunday. What day is Sunday? She said, it's the first day. Why don't you keep the Sabbath of the Bible? She said, you can't, you can't tell which is the seventh day. Keep the seventh. You can find out which is the first day. You can't find out which is the seventh day? Come on. Then the same lady said to me, because she was running out of arguments, she said, you can't keep the Sabbath on a round world. Oh, I thought God made it round, but that's maybe beside the point. But she said, you can't keep it because, she said, what is the seventh day in America? It's not the same time as in Australia. She said, now that's got you. So we got a little globe, and we illustrated it. As the globe turns, the day moves around the world, you see. The Bible doesn't tell us to keep Saturday in the same place every day part of the world, it tells us to keep the seventh day, and it moves around the world. I said, does Sunday move around the world? Oh, she said, that's true. You can keep Sunday in Australia, in America, but she said, but you can't keep the Sabbath because it's been lost and we live in a round world. It sort of makes me confused. Then other people say, I don't keep the Sabbath. I can never keep the Sabbath because it's Jewish. Hey, are you an anti-Semite? Got something against the Jews. I don't keep it all Jewish Sabbath. Hey, Jesus is a Jew. Then the biggest Christian church, they say it's Jewish. Hey, what about the Virgin Mary? Bless your heart, she's Jewish. What about the Bible? It's a Jewish book. Oh, not the New Testament. It is not, yeah, it's Jewish too. The apostles were Jews. Matthew, Mark, St. Paul, greatest theologian. Well, they say, I don't keep the Sabbath because seeing I'm saved by grace, I keep the Lord's day. Yeah, that's, that's right. I'm saved by grace, that's why I keep the Lord's day, and that's the Sabbath. But they say, no, no, no. It says in the Bible that Sunday is the Lord's day. No, it doesn't. And Revelation ten say, says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So what? It simply tells you that God has a Lord's day. It doesn't tell you there what day it is. But I turn to the Bible, Isaiah 58, and other passages in the Bible, and they say, "Don't quote to me the Old Testament. Why? Do you want to throw away the only Bible Jesus ever had? That's the only Bible Jesus had. You want to throw it out to you. Do you want to throw out the New Testament? Because that was written by Jews? It was? Yes, it was. Now what is the Lord's day? The Bible says, the Sabbath of the Lord your God, my holy day, Isaiah 58. So there's no evidence for keeping Sunday. Sorry about that. Remember, Jesus, our Lord, was a Sabbath keeper. I somehow got the idea, maybe I've been wrong, but I somehow got the idea A Christian was a person who followed Christ. And Christ was a Sabbath keeper. He talked about my holy day. He said the Sabbath was made for man. And M-A-N doesn't spell J-E-W. Didn't when I went to school. Jesus was a Sabbath keeper. The apostles, every one of them, were Sabbath keepers. St. Paul was a Sabbath keeper. The great apostle of righteousness by faith, the true gospel, was a Sabbath keeper. All of the early Christians were Sabbath keepers. And today around the world, there's a revival in Sabbath keeping. Millions, tens of millions today are turning back to the Sabbath. I want to say to my Baptist friends who are watching today, God bless the Baptists. We love the Baptists. We're glad that you want to put the Ten Commandments, my Baptist friends, back in the schools. But I want to say to you, when you put back the Ten Commandments, make sure you put back the Ten and don't leave out the Fourth. Because the Fourth says, remember the Sabbath day. Six days you will labor, but the Seventh day is the Sabbath. It's the Lord's day. You know, if Jesus were here, Jesus would be right here in this church because by the grace of God, he joined forces with the Sabbath keepers. And the Bible tells us that in the earth made new, when the earth is made over again, the Bible says in Isaiah 66, every person is going to keep the Sabbath. Did you know that? That's true. That's true. So Jesus said, pray that your flight will not take place in the winter. Nile to the cross? No, no. Winter's still here. Old whore frost is still there. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter because it's cold or on the Sabbath because you ought to have a day of rest and worship God. Did you know the Sabbath is really good news. It's a special truth for these last days. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian philosopher, theologian said of his own country, he could say it of America, man has forgotten God and all this has come upon us. When man forgets God there is breakdown. Are you having a breakdown some way or the other? When man forgets God there's a breakdown, social breakdown, physical breakdown, mental breakdown, emotional breakdown, spiritual breakdown. This has happened to every nation in history that has forgotten God. And one of the reasons God gave us the Sabbath was so that we would not forget him. And the Bible talks about the Lord's day. It doesn't talk about the Lord's hour. Sabbath is not over when you leave this church. We don't go playing golf. We don't do those things because it's the Lord's holy day. It's not just a holiday. It is more than a holiday. It is a holiday with God. It is a holy day. It is a window on eternity. It's the best day. Let me write this up for you on the blackboard. The Sabbath day, the Bible tells me, is a rest day and because God blessed it it is don't tell me my English is bad I know it is the blessed day and because God is in it it is the best day and Jesus said in the last days according to Matthew 24 it is the test day I want you my friend to come and stand on high ground many of you are just living down in a swamp You don't know what life is all about. You don't know the meaning of life, and you don't know joy. The Bible says, Jesus said, come unto me and I'll give you rest. Come, keep the Sabbath. So that is the third doctrine our Lord spoke about in this chapter, the little apocalypse. Would you please notice the fourth doctrine, Matthew 24, verse 27. Dear friends, great doctrines that Jesus taught for the last days. You enjoying church today? Yes. Matthew twenty-four, verse twenty-seven. Have a look at this, dear friend. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus spoke about salvation, Satan, Sabbath, and Jesus said, "Here is is another great doctrine, and that is the doctrine of." The second coming. And Jesus said it is not going to be a secret rapture. It is going to be like the lightning that flashes from east to west. Everybody sees it. So he told us, understand the truth about the coming. Because just as there are counterfeit gospels, not Jesus, but poor old Willie or Billy, There are counterfeit doctrines about the second coming and many, many people have been deceived by the counterfeit. Have you? Would you please notice verse 29? 29 immediately after 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 notice that after the distress of those days the sun will be darkened so you got the distress and then you've got these signs and then verse 30 this is after the distress after the great tribulation at that time the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other listen very carefully this because it is so plain a little child could see it. Jesus talks about the great tribulation. Jesus talks about the great tribulation. He talks about his people keeping the Sabbath during the great tribulation. And then Jesus said, after this, after this, they'll see the sign of the Son of Man in the heavens and they'll see the Son of Man coming with power and great glory. After the great tribulation. Almost Every television evangelist talks about a secret rapture and the saints, zoom, up into heaven. And then the Antichrist comes and rules for three and a half years. They get that from Daniel 9 out of context. And so they've got the saints up in heaven, only the bad people here on the earth, and the Antichrist is ruling after the second coming but the Bible says that the second coming comes after the great tribulation and the rule of the abomination of desolation. Why do they all believe it? Why do they all believe it? It's amazing. Did you know that Hal Lindsey put out a book and gullible people, 29 million of them, bought copies? He taught that Jesus was going to come in a secret way and the saints were going to be raptured home. Forty years after Israel had been made as a state, he said, it's going to happen September 11 to 13, 1988. Why doesn't he come out and say today, I was so wrong, I'll give you back your money. And the people Trinity Jan and Paul Crouch, wonderful Christians, I'm sure. They were so certain that the rapture was going to come that they put Trinity Broadcasting on automatic. No live messages from September 11 to 13, 1988. Trinity was worked automatically. You know why? Because they believe they're going to be home in heaven raptured. It is... A deception. Why is it a deception? Because it's not torn in the word of God. That's why. Listen to this. The Bible talks not about a rapture, but it talks about the coming of the Lord in power and great glory. And it says in First Thessalonians 4:16 and 17: For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall be raised first. They said this was going to happen in 1988 and nobody was going to know about it. You wouldn't hear about it. Folks, would just be gone. One person who believes in the rapture looked at that text. When I showed it to him I said, is that a secret text? He said, really, it's the noisiest text in the Bible, isn't it? The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel. The trumpet the trumpet's going to Sound forth, and the dead are going to come out of their tombs. Secret? Then we who are alive and remain sure shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. So you're going to have a resurrection? Going to be secret? And then you're going to have a translation? It's going to be secret? Hey, You've got to be kidding. You really got to be kidding. The secret rapture, I tell you, is a great doctrine. Only problem is it's wrong. Amen. It's like Sunday keeping, it's not taught in the Bible. The secret rapture is unknown to God and the angels and will be unknown to the saints. So Jesus said, Understand the gospel of salvation, understand who the foe is Satan, understand the Sabbath, keep it. And he said, Understand. The genuine second coming is your Christ, Jesus, or Willie, or Billy, or somebody else. And Jesus in Matthew 24 calls us to be ready. The coming is visible, audible, oh no phony secret rapture, no, no, no. It's visible, it's audible, it's literal, it's personal, it's glorious, it is soon. The coming of a king because whenever you have a kingdom you have a king. And While we do not have a king in the United States of America that sits in the White House At least I think we don't. We who belong to the kingdom of God have a king. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, today I have presented to you pertinent, powerful truths in the context of the last days from the lips of the king. Believe his gospel. Beware of Satan's devices. My friend, accept his invitation. Come apart before you come apart. Rejoice in the hope that soon he will make all things new. These words are true and faithful.